0: Well, the English composition student, he knows writing, and the English composition student knows headaches. To ease his pain, a few years ago, an online program called Grammarly was launched. It happened in 2009. And this is an online program. They observe to date that more than 30 million people and 50,000 teams rely on them and what they offer. What do they do? Well... You can submit something online and they will review that writing. They will take it and analyze it. They'll look for spelling errors, for problems with grammar. They're going to give you points for clarity and help you with errors. And they also provide helpful tips, instructions for writing and composition. When it comes to the conclusion of an essay, it's that portion for the English student that can be the most headache-inducing, they give four instructions. When it comes to the conclusion, they say to the writer, restate your main idea, remind readers your main point, reiterate those main points, the evidence you've used to craft your arguments, wrap everything up, tying it together, and write a clincher. In that last sentence, leave your reader with something to consider. Well, this morning, you and I read a conclusion. These are Peter's closing words, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. And this conclusion meets not only these four criteria, but it exceeds them. Under the guidance of God's Holy Spirit, Peter pens God's words. These are words that are going to be read by billions of people through millions of churches throughout history. And here's why this conclusion is so valuable for you and I. It's not just an example of good writing according to Grammarly, no. This is an impressive review of everything Peter's written in the book. In five verses, he summarizes five chapters, touching on various themes he's introduced throughout the letter. And you and I need review, don't we? We need to be reviewing God's word and God's themes. We'll review this morning God's presence in our suffering. And we'll review God's plan for Christian living. And we'll even review who this mysterious yet majestic God is who reigns over all. This morning we'll conclude here with two reminders as we bid farewell to Peter. Chapter 5, verses 10 through 14. Well, let me read this text to you as we segue into the message. Peter picks up in verse 10: After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Salvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who was in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Well, for our first major heading this morning, I want to explore the reliability of God's person. Peter touches on this and expands from his letter. It's the reliability of God's person. I call 1 Peter something of a field manual for suffering. In this letter, he's given us um, a lot of important information on suffering. And And here in the West, you and I don't suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, not any kind of in-depth persecution, at least not yet, not that often. But you never know. Things can change. And there may, in fact, be times where we do suffer for our faith. At any rate, as we've walked through this letter, we've tried to apply that message of suffering both to the faith and then to other ways we suffer in life. But so much of how we suffer and what to do is grounded in the person of God. And Peter keeps pointing us back to God and pointing us to Jesus Christ as that foundation. In this letter, he's proclaimed a God of power, a God of grace, and a God of faithfulness. Notice in verse 10, he calls God the God of all grace. God reveals himself using various names or titles throughout the Bible. We think of some of those Old Testament names in particular, for example, he reveals himself as yahweh Jireh, or the Lord, our provider. And that happens in the context of Abraham. He's up there ready to sacrifice Isaac, his son, and a ram appears in the thicket. Well, God has provided. That's exclaimed in that passage. There's Yahweh-Shalom, the Lord, our peace, another great name for God. In Judges, it's Gideon who understands this about God. He sees an angel of the Lord and thought he would die. He did not. God is a God of peace. There's Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there. This is Ezekiel's name for God. He sees God returning his glory to Jerusalem and the, the temple and says, The Lord is there. But numbered among these many great names of God ought to be verse 10. He is the God of all grace. Nothing quite like it appears in the rest of the scriptures. Paul comes close, 2 Corinthians 1. He's the God of all comfort. But this is special. He's the God of all grace. And notice where this title is located as well. It comes right on the heels of uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. There we learned a great deal about a very real Satan prowling about, seeking to devour people. Before that, in verses 6 and 7, we learn about an anxiety that hung like a haze over this congregation Peter wrote to. But then in verse 10, Peter writes, But after you have suffered for a while, a little while, the God of grace will act. Now, to be clear, the word but does head that off. None of our English Bibles have that, and I'm not sure why. It could be translated as and the God of grace. Maybe he's connecting a thought, but I think he's making a contrast here. You suffer with fellow Christians, he says, but but God is going to act. Peter makes a contrast between the suffering that's happening and the future that's coming. In verse 12, he identifies his letter, this letter itself as a grace. I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. In other words... Everything he's penned up to this point is a grace given by God. This letter, the scriptures even, are an unmerited favor that God has given you and I. He says throughout the letter, he's been exhorting, he's been trying to persuade and convince the church of various truths. He's been testifying, he's been bearing witness. Peter saw a great deal of the Lord Jesus Christ And by the way, did you catch that Peter speaks to the length of his letter? Did you see that in verse 12? I've written to you briefly. This entire letter is 1,684 words. And just to give you a perspective on this, one researcher has examined thousands of letters from the same era in which Peter wrote. And he's discovered that the average length of the letter of the time is... Eighty-seven words. And you're never going to guess who takes the trophy for the longest average in this time. Beating out Roman writers like Cicero and writers like Seneca with the average of 2,495 words, the Apostle Paul is the wordiest. And praise God for that. So it should be. But the point I'm trying to make is that all of Scripture is a grace given to us by God. Peter's already told us, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Peter, he loves this concept of grace. In verse 12, it marks the 10th time the word appears in the letter. And just as this concept, just as this word is all over the letter, so too is God's grace all over our lives. Your entire life is a life of grace. Daily, God wakes you in the morning. That's grace. By grace, you put on the clothes. He's graced you. You put them in in the shelter. He's graced you. He fills your pantries, and he fills your fridges. By grace, you and I this morning are here with competent minds and able bodies. This is a grace of God. By grace, we have spouses and children and parents and families. They are a grace of God. By grace, we have eyes to behold the beauty of God's designs. and By grace, we have ears to hear the sound of his creation. By grace, we have mouths to enjoy the flavors of creation. And by grace, we have feet to walk the expanse of his world. It is by grace that tonight we'll go to sleep and by grace we'll wake in the morning to do it all over again. All of, it is a God of, all of it is a grace of God. God is the God of grace. The suffering you endure is an act of grace. Now We don't normally think about it that way, but Peter's been teaching us in this letter that it is. And it's gonna be true for at least two reasons. Suffering is an act of grace because it sends us running to the Lord. You and I have never probably run out of our front door like we would if the house was on fire. And that's Paul's point as he writes in 2 Corinthians 12. He's experiencing some form of suffering. You know this passage, he writes of some thorn in the flesh. And Jesus says, I'm not taking it away, but rather my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, we know that Paul is an eminent apostle, a premier among apostles, but he's also a human being. And Jesus saw fit to grant him a form of suffering so that Paul would be leaning on him and running to him and turning to him. Secondly, Suffering sanctifies us. This is the second way that suffering is a grace. It sanctifies us. It makes us more like Christ. It's an act of grace to not remain the same. It's an act of grace to change. In Romans 8, 17, we learn that we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified with him. I am not the same person I was when I came to faith in Jesus. That's good. I trust that's your experience as well, that over time you are changing. And part of that changing is coming through suffering. It may be perhaps one of the most effective ways that we are sanctified. We are sanctified maybe a little bit in birthday parties, workplace bonuses. But suffering, suffering sanctifies us. Our most significant growth happens, I believe, through suffering, and God is a God of grace. But when we suffer, moving on to a second theme here, a second theme in the person of God, the reliability of God, when we suffer, we must remember that God is in control, that God is sovereign over that suffering. Notice in this passage this morning, there is a time limit set on your suffering. Verse 10, it's a little while, a little while. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, in chapter 38, God speaks of his sovereign power, and he speaks of his power over creation, the oceans in particular. This is wonderful imagery. He's describing, if you can imagine, a long seashore at the side, at the corner of the oceans. I place boundaries on it. I set a bolt and doors, and I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther, and here shall your proud waves stop. What a beautiful picture of God's power. It's as though he is saying to the oceans, you can come up this far, but you may not go any farther. It's as though a door was set, as a uh, a door with a bolt on hinges. It's the same way with our sufferings. In chapter 1, verse 6, for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in various trials. God retains sovereign power over our sufferings. They will be allowed to come up so far and no further, and God determines where that will be. As a reminder, we see in verse 11 that he's in control of this world. Peter says, he exclaims, to him be dominion forever and ever. It's almost as though as to forget God's sovereign dominion is a a form of suffering in itself. Forgetting that God's in control can lead to anxiety and and depression and, and even anger. But the point here is that if God is able to exercise a global dominion, how much more is He able to exercise control over our sufferings as well? Because we know that He does. And going even further, it is a mark of sovereign grace that you and I are in Jesus Christ today. And Peter revisits this theme of calling in his conclusion The term has been used in in two main ways throughout the letter. Uh, The first, God calls us to suffer. In chapter 2, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example to follow. In chapter 3, verse 9, similarly, we learn that we are called to endure ill treatment. So there's a calling, a calling to suffer. But the letter also spoke about a calling to salvation, that God calls us to To salvation. In chapter 2, verse 9, God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In our passage this morning, chapter 5, verse 10, God called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's salvation. The salvation that God calls us to, it's an effectual call. God is sovereignly regenerating our hearts. And what he's doing here is he's tying these two groups of people together. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter writes to those people out in the far reaches of the Roman Empire and Pontus and Cappadocia and Galatia, and he says, look, you are right here in the same boat as the folks over here where I am. In chapter 5, verse 13, she who is in Babylon is chosen together with you. I'm we'll talk more about who this Babylon is in a moment. But the point I want to make here is that Peter's going to use the the doctrine of election to tie together these two struggling groups of believers. This doctrine of election, it's not supposed to be some sterile, emotionless doctrine. It's not simply meant to be a lightning rod for theological controversy. No, read Ephesians 1. Paul is going on, he's overwhelmed with God's sovereign election and predestination, and he's going to go on for 12 verses without a period. Grammarly would ding him for that. But Peter wants his Christians to know, listen, God is in charge of your suffering. You're chosen by God. He began there, chapter 1, verse 1, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We learn that they are a chosen race in chapter 2, verse 9. This new birth is uniting believers and it's transcending the many old schemes that Satan has been using to divide them. And because God calls and God chooses, God remains with us. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't reject us. It's an important truth when we're suffering. Well, thirdly, God is faithful. We just saw he's a sovereign God. He's in control. God is a gracious God, but God is also a faithful God. Maybe we're suffering, maybe we're not, but it's not unusual for a believer to ask in this Christian life, what's next? What now? What should I expect? Look at verse 10. This is an incredible promise. God will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think those four actions are, are all closely related They're all pretty much saying the same thing. I think Peter's intentionally stacking these words together. But at the same time, each one brings out a different nuance. It sheds a a different light on this promise made by God. Our faithful God will perfect us. Peter may see this on his actual hands. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. The word for perfect is used of mending nets back in Matthew chapter 4. It means to put in order to restore. How many nets did Peter bend in his lifetime? Probably a lot. The imagery is very helpful here, but I think it goes even further than this. It's to to make whole, and this is something that we long for as believers. To be made whole in Jesus Christ, to be perfected. That day is coming. That's the promise in verse 10. Secondly, God is going to confirm us. That word actually has to do with stability. God is going to stabilize the believer. Many things in this life are destabilizing, attempting us to knock us off of our, our faith or our walk. Sufferings and trials in this life, they do that. Well, God is going to confirm us. God's going to strengthen us. Suffering will wear us down. God will strengthen us and build us up. And God is going to establish us. You'll know how this word's used. Matthew 7 verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, but it did not fall for it had been founded or established on the rock. A wonderful picture of what Peter describes in that fourth promise. So God is a faithful God and a sovereign God and a gracious God. But why does Peter conclude with this rehearsal of God? He does this because he's presented us in this letter with the Christian life. At first, Peter has treated you and I to a wide array of experiences we will have living for the Lord. In five chapters... Peter has articulated what it looks like to live like an alien in a foreign land. He's written to the people of his day. He's written to the people in our day. And what's the forecast? What shall we expect? Well, by way of review, you will be distressed by various trials. Fleshly lusts will wage war against your soul. Fiery ordeals will come upon you for your testing. You're going to be slandered. You're going to be reviled. You will need to suffer unjustly. You'll need to suffer in silence. You'll need to suffer for the sake of righteousness. you need to suffer in the sufferings of Christ. You'll need to suffer according to the will of God. And you will need to do what is right and suffer for it. He says that twice. That is why he says as much about the Lord as he does in this letter, revisiting it in the end because hard times are coming. Hard times are here. Suffering shares the room with us today. And the bigger the problem, the harder the trial, the farther past God we will be tempted to look. But Peter says, no, look to the Lord. Look to the God who is powerful and the God who is gracious, and the God who is faithful. One last time, in the conclusion, Peter reminds you and I to remember who God is, to believe who God is, and to live like God is. That brings us to our second broad reminder for this morning. We've seen the person of God here. We want to look secondly at the response of God's people the response of God's people. And we understand that about Scripture. It not only tells us about who God and who God is and what God does, but it calls for a response, how we are to respond in light of that. And Peter's conclusion here is going to review our mandate to testify, to testify or to bear witness to who God is. And we're going to see this through one of the relationships that Peter enjoyed in his ministry. Through Salvanus, he writes, my faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, verse 12, chapter 5. In the book of Acts, we're first introduced to Salvanus. Salvanus is uh, labeled there a Roman citizen as well as a prophet. He partnered with Paul on missionary journeys. He's also here partnered with uh, Peter in writing this letter. He's partnered with Timothy in ministry. His name is on a New Testament mail, not only in 1 Peter, but he's also writing 1 and 2 Thessalonians with Paul. And we see in our verse here that Peter enjoyed a special friendship. A special friendship with Salvanus. I I would only hope that you and I have at least one friend like this. Someone who has our our complete confidence. Someone who has our, our complete trust. And we know that Salvanus had this. That he had this from Peter because of the charge given him. Now remember, when Peter writes this, it is 60 A.D. They didn't even have fax machines yet. All right, those things are pretty old. They probably did. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Peter can't just drop this letter in the mail. He can't share the link. He can't text it. He can't even email it. No, he had to handwrite all of this. It may even have been that Salvanus was handwriting as Peter was dictating. That was a common form of composition in the time. In verse 12, we see that Peter begins that verse by writing, it's through Salvanus. Either he has written through Salvanus, that Salvanus has written this down, or it's that plus the delivery. Salvanus would have delivered this letter for him. But either way, Peter needed a trusted friend, someone he could count on to get this letter from point A to point B. And not only that, when he does, he needs a trusted friend, a face, for apostolic authority. He needs someone who can accurately interpret or relay Peter's thoughts. You gotta get truth right. The church is young, the church is early, the church is vulnerable. So Sylvanus here is not merely the deliverer of mail. He's a straight-up ambassador. He's just as much an ambassador here as he is a mailman. Well, in a similar way, you and I are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We've been called to be the face of Jesus to a lost world. We've been called to testify on behalf of him and his gospel. We've learned in this letter how to represent Christ in various relationships, what did we learn about? We learned about to the government and to our spouses and to unbelievers. And praise God, he's given us a model to follow, he's given us Jesus Christ. The thing about being a tester or an ambassador for Jesus Christ is that we're gonna follow in his steps. That means that this is less a manual about how to get our best lives now and glory today and more about suffering now with glory tomorrow. That was the life of Jesus. That's the model he left us, being just like Christ. In verse 21, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And Jesus perfectly followed his Father's will. And he's given you and I that model to follow. There's something more to learn from another relationship in the closing here. Verse 13, Peter writes, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings. There's the big debate swirling around who this Babylon is. We know that it's a city in Iraq from the days of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar and so on. But when Peter writes this, that's probably not where he was writing from. There's also a town in Egypt called Babylon. It's doubtful that Peter was in Egypt. Some believe that Peter's referring to his wife here, but that doesn't solve the problem either. But one of the best interpretations, I believe, interprets Babylon to be a church. Babylon would be just a veiled way of referring to a city, a place like Rome. That'd be a way to protect the church there by not just calling her out in the letter. It'd also be a way of avoiding any kind of unnecessary attention if Salvanus did run into trouble delivering the letter. But think about that for a moment. If that is true, if Peter's writing from a place like Rome, what does that mean? It means that Peter is writing from ground zero in the capital city of civilized evil. Near the time of his writing. A great fire is going to break out in the city of Rome. A man who is part human and part lunatic, Nero, is going to take it out on the Christians. An empire-wide persecution follows. In fact, records show that Peter died in this persecution initiated by Nero. And we learn this about Peter already, this humility that he bears how he identifies with the people of God. We we know he's an apostle. We know he followed Jesus. He saw him. Back in chapter five, verse one, he came alongside those leaders. He just said, I'm your fellow elder. And the way Peter conducts himself then, with such humility reminds us of who? Of of Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Jesus loves you. He died for you. You and I sin. We sin in a way that's intentional, perhaps a way that's ignorant, but we're born sinners, and that sin separates us from God. But Jesus paid the price for this sin, for your sin, by giving his life for you, by humbling himself, and coming down from heaven as fully God to take on fully flesh. And now if you turn from your sin and believe upon him today, you'll be saved from sin's penalty. That's the humility of our Jesus Christ, to, to reach down and to, to grab our hands and to pick us up out of the muck and out of the mire of sin. And we then go when we live a new life. That's the second theme that we see under these, this second heading. Peter's given us additionally today a charge to fight. There's a charge to fight in these passages, and that's been a theme through his letter as well. In verse 12, he issues one final command, stand firm in it. To which we ask, what is it, Peter? Well, we need to look back at what came just before it. He's referring to the true grace of God, and I believe that he's referring to the entirety of his letter here. But it's in this vein, in this idea of of warring or fighting that we've learned in verse 9 that we're to resist Satan, Satan, firm in your faith. Back in chapter two, verse 11, we were told to abstain from fleshly lusts. They wage war against your soul. In chapter four, verse one, we're to arm ourselves for the purpose of suffering. So you can hear how there's this this battle cry, in a sense, to the Christian life. We also know that it's Jesus Christ who makes it winnable. That's an important note to remember. Because after all, he did resurrect from the dead and he does dwell at the right hand of God. And his angels and authorities and powers, all of them have been subjected to him. And there is a peace to be enjoyed in this Christian life. Yet at the same time, there's no peace to be made with sin. Our sanctification, it's going to be a battle. There is something of a fight involved between now and the day we go to heaven. And in Peter's conclusion here, we're reminded of this aspect of the Christian life. To fight, to testify, and then thirdly, finally, we're learning to love. This reminder to love comes in a bit of a curious and arguably uncomfortable way. What does he say? Greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, you're going to be happy to know that this word for kiss only appears five other times in the New Testament. You're going to be equally disturbed to know that every time it does appear, it's a command. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, let's take a few steps back here. I think you need to know first, as one pastor says, this is a holy kiss, not a Hollywood kiss. There's nothing sexual about this. This is a kiss of love given among family members. Christians are brothers and sisters in Christ. God is their father. We saw that this morning in our opening to the service. This kiss would be a visible, physical way of communicating love to one another. Most likely it was conducted on the hand or the forehead or the cheek. No, we may not adopt this particular form of expression. Many of us are much more comfortable with a thumbs-up emoji But at the same time, there's something to this, isn't there? Don't underestimate the value of communicating love within the church. And we want to do that appropriately, but we don't want to forget to do it either. What could possibly make an expression of love like this conceivable, that two believers would exchange a kiss? Well, it's that they love one another. And we've seen this call again and again in First Peter. In chapter 2, verse 17, we're called to love the brotherhood. In chapter 1, verse 22, we're to purify our souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Fervently love one another from the heart. In chapter 4, verse 8, Peter reminds us to keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, can you imagine for a moment what these verses could do in a church? These verses, this concept of love, it's designed to dismantle. It's designed to dismantle all the excuses that you and I have to not love so-and-so. This is designed to dismantle all of the wrongs that you and I have received, both perceived in the church and real, This love is designed to dismantle all the ways we've reasoned and rationalized and even resolved away love. If you were a Christian this morning, please, please love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Peter concludes here with many themes from this letter. We have this charge to keep and we can keep it. Because of who we are now in Jesus Christ. And in conclusion, as we bid farewell to 1 Peter, his final wish is simply, peace be to all who are in Christ. And Peter can say that because he was in Christ, and because he knew peace. You may recall the account back in Matthew's Gospel where Peter saw the Lord coming across the lake in a storm. He and the other disciples were in a boat, it's a massive storm raging. These were seasoned fishermen, sailors on that exact lake, and they were terrified. As the wind howls, Peter yells, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And when you know it, Peter begins to walk on the water. And you know that he doesn't get very far, does he? because he sees the storm, he's soaking wet in his clothes. That mist has sprang him in the face. It's pitch black, he can probably see the Lord as the lightning flashes, and he begins to sink. And the Lord lifts him up, and they get in the boat, and the wind stops. It's peace. And when the wind blows, believer, As suffering beats against the sides of your life, remember Jesus Christ. That you are in Christ. And that he, just like his father, is gracious and sovereign and faithful. And that he understands suffering. And he'll never give you more than he can handle. Peace be to you in Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Father, I pray for peace in every soul here this morning. And I pray for a unity that is fostered by peace. That this would be a haven for us from all of the varied and disturbing sufferings we face in this life. Father, if there be any this morning who are not at peace, I pray, Father, that they would know Jesus Christ. And if they do, they would know the peace that he can bring. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.